So in the talk this evening, I'd like to reflect on the theme of refuge. Clearly a very classical, traditional teaching in on the Buddhist path. Also to look at what this classical, traditional teaching might look, for us, look like for us as lay practitioners or for people who don't even feel particularly affiliated with the Buddhist tradition. I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan, streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solitaries, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen, even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, untouched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire, Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of the frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light. Now the taking or the finding of very of refuge is is considered to be something very central in the path of awakening, to understand these last instructions of the Buddha, what it means to be a light unto ourselves, to find inwardly an unshakable grace and confidence and trust that we can rest in. Now around the world, Really, on a daily basis, tens of thousands of people in monasteries, alone, together with others, on their meditation cushions, chant what are called the three great refuges. If I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dhamma, and I take refuge in the Sangha. And this chanting is not just an empty recitation of words but is really considered to be a manifestation of sincerity, of commitment, of confidence, of aspiration, and of intention. Now, in many ways, for these tens of thousands of people, taking refuge is something very ordinary. It's something very simple, natural. Yet, when we live our lives with that sense of aspiration and intentionality somehow in the forefront of our awareness. It powerfully reminds us, actually, of what we're doing here. 
And what really as is, is central is at the heart of this path. Now in Pali, the language in which the early texts were first recorded, this taking of refuge is budang sanam gachami, damang sanam gachami, and sangam sanam gachami. Now, this word sanam that is repeated, it refers to a quality of sanctuary, of protection, a place of shelter, of peace, of safety. And gachami comes from a Pali word which really refers to an act of returning, of coming back to, taking refuge, returning, coming back to the Buddha, or finding sanctuary in that, is really on its, I think, most essential level something that we are all invited to do as we practice, which is to place our trust, our confidence, our heart in awakening, in our own capacity for liberation, our own capacity to discover freedom. Not just that we follow in the footsteps of a historical Buddha, but that we see and that we know for ourselves what the Buddha also saw and knew. To know for ourselves the same unshakable freedom of heart. This was not just an aspiration or a realization of Siddhartha, but this aspiration for liberation, for inner freedom, is what all great mystics and practitioners in all traditions through time aspire to and come to realize. This sense of taking refuge in the Buddha in our own capacity for awakening, the capacity to return to that, is something, of course, that we don't just do once, but thousands of time in a single day, perhaps hundreds of times in a single hour, we remind ourselves to understand and to see what is true and what is free, rather than being lost in confusion or deluded ideas about ourselves or about the world. As a small piece of a poem by a Chan nun, She says, a single meditation cushion and one is completely protected. Earth may crumble, heaven collapse, but here one is at peace. Sacred titles and worldly fame both fade away in the sitting and the whole universe assembles on the tip of a feather. To take refuge in the Dhammas, to place our heart, our trust in the teaching, in the path of awakening. Each time we sit or walk and each time we cultivate our capacity to be present rather than being lost. Each time we remember to return from fantasy or struggle or anxiety to being in this body, in this moment, 
in that moment we are actually taking refuge in the Dhamma. Each time that we remember that we can embody kindness and compassion rather than ill will and resistance, in that moment that is also taking refuge in the Dharma. Each moment that we value mindfulness and wakefulness and know that we can return from the world of habit and preoccupation and agitation, this too is taking refuge in the Dharma. Taking refuge in the Dharma for me has much to do with finding the courage to meet our lives and to meet this moment rather than to flee. Each time we remember and return to seeing what is, rather than searching for what may be or could be, this is also taking refuge in the Dharma. It is rediscovering an intelligent awareness that can really connect with and embrace the simple truth of every moment, the lovely and the unlovely, rather than being lost. This is taking refuge in the path of awakening. The practice of awakening. In a way, this taking refuge in the Dharma is learning to liberate the moment. Taking refuge in the Sangha, traditionally this means taking refuge in the community of liberated beings. But on another level, taking refuge in the Sangha is taking refuge in our own sense of relatedness, connectedness, the community of beings. To do that, I think for many of us, this quality of connectedness and relatedness has much to do with our willingness to put down the fires of liking and disliking and preferences and judgments and to come to know so deeply inside that each one of us depends upon everyone around us, just as everyone around us actually depends upon us, that our lives are entwined on every level, in suffering and in joy, in hatred and in love. Sangha, translated from the Pali, has much to do with the meaning of a sense of harmony, respect, community, rooted in kindness and in ethics. I mean, we see in this path how we hold this this kind of paradox, not only in this path, but in, in our lives too, that in so many ways we are alone. Some of the deepest lessons in our lives only we can actually learn. In so many ways, we are alone in our capacity to cultivate what is truly meaningful for us in meeting some of the most challenging moments of our lives. And yet we are and always have been alone with others. And our very interdependence really asks us to take refuge in respect, in integrity, in in care and compassion. So in the saying from the Tibetan tradition, it says, wherever my eyes may fall, 
May my gaze be honest and filled with compassion. Refuge, a place of peace, a place of safety, the commitment to it at its most essential level is a commitment to returning and it's a commitment to relinquishing flight. Relinquishing our tendency to to flee, to avoid, to resist, to disconnect and instead to learn to be fearless and upright in our lives with a, a willingness to embrace everything. The wild and the chaotic thoughts, the sunbeams on the grass, the lovely, the difficult people, the lovely, the difficult emotions. In the most critical and I think the most challenging times of our lives, in the midst of loss, in the midst of illness, in the midst of death, there is probably nothing that can serve us so well as understanding deeply what it means to be a refuge unto ourselves. To know in our own hearts a place of peace and safety. When our worlds crumble, and I think my sense is that there will be times for all of us in our lives when our worlds indeed do crumble. To understand what it means to be able to rely upon ourselves when we see the moments when there is nothing that we can really lean upon, but to know what it means to be able to have an inner refuge of poise and confidence and balance, I sense this could be the greatest of all blessings. Dogen, who was one of the most influential and brilliant teachers and scholars in Buddhist history, who was also an extraordinarily accomplished practitioner. When he was dying, what did he do? Where did he go in his practice? He had certainly developed through his years of practice a capacity to go into remarkably blissful states and transcendent experiences, out-of-body experiences. But in the moments of his dying, this was not his choice. What he did instead was to hang on a pillar in his sick room with a very long piece of paper with the words Buddha, Dharma and Sangha written upon them. And it said in the, in the stories about his dying that when he could find the strength to get out of his bed, that he would walk around this pillar chanting, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dhamma, I take refuge in the Sangha. I think the capacity to find in our own hearts this fearless place, this place of ultimate peace and safety and refuge, is not only, I think, for our own benefit, But it is a capacity that truly enables us, too, to be able to offer refuge to others. 
And we see in all cultures this historical sense of refuge, whether it was the, you know, the underground railways in the times of U.S. slavery, whether it was during the Holocaust, the people of goodwill who could offer protection, that the world needs courage. The world needs the fearlessness of compassion. The world needs much to know, to be able to offer, be offered this sense of refuge. Shanti Deva, who was one of the great poets of compassion, he wrote about this, you know, because refuge, this capacity to offer refuge is so linked to the fabric and the teaching of compassion. Shanti Deva wrote, he said, May I be a friend to those who have no friends, a protector to those who have no protection, a guide to those who are lost, an island to those who are cast adrift. I think our capacity to offer refuge to another, to embrace the depths of suffering and pain in our world with courage is clearly so directly linked to our capacity to know a steadfast heart. Our capacity to know what it means to be able to be upright and confident. Over the years of teaching, i come to see more and more clearly that the Initial motivation for many of us to begin to explore a meditative or a spiritual path is often quite a curious but very important blend of disappointment and insight. It is probably clear to us in our own experience, in our own stories, that when we do not have so much confidence in our own hearts, when we do not have so much confidence that we can be a refuge to to ourselves, offer to ourselves an embrace of peace and, and safety, then we're going to seek refuge somewhere else outside of ourselves. Sometimes this can be skillful. Sometimes it's not so skillful. When we feel most shaken within inwardly or most, most disconnected from that sense of inner poise and compassion and balance, we look to find someone or something that we can lean on, hoping that they can deliver perhaps the peace or the safety that we feel to be lacking in ourselves. Sometimes we try to find refuge in status, in identity, in possessions. We might search the corners of the world to find the one person who's going to be the island, the the rock that we can stand on. When we can't bear at times the essential uncertainties in life, we might try to find refuge in control, in habit. Times people seek refuge in, in drugs, in alcohol, in food, in fantasy, in craving, and often in forgetfulness. 
because this is often what we do, what we may be prone to do the most when life feels most raw or we feel most vulnerable is try to find refuge in forgetfulness one of the you know countless research studies about mindfulness and meditation but one of the recent ones i i read uh, this researcher after having studied a number of people's minds and lives came to the conclusion that the average person spends 49% of their time somewhere other than where they are. I was astonished by that statistic. I would have put it much, much higher myself. 49%? I thought, that's not too bad. Look at your day-to-day. Did you manage the 40, you know, 51% of being exactly where you were? But it's an interesting question, I think, to to bring into our lives and to bring into our practice. Where do we go when we're not here? Where do we go when we are not present within this body, mind, life experience in the moment? And with everything that is brought... It's such an interesting question to bring into our practice. Do we find ourselves taking refuge in fantasy, in forgetfulness, in planning, rehearsing, remembering, sleep? To look at that through the day, what is going on in our minds in those moments when we're somehow convincing ourselves or trying to convince ourselves that happiness, that peace and safety is surely going to be found somewhere else other than right here within ourselves. Now, sometimes the motivation in that seeking for refuge, even in these wild places that cannot provide, sometimes the motivation is actually quite wholesome and timeless and enduring. We're actually looking for a place where we can rest, a place of ease, of happiness, of safety. But the delusion, of course, is the projection of that refuge outside of ourselves. Now, there's no blame or no judgment about that because I think throughout our lives we're exposed very much to a collective and a cultural delusion that promotes two things. One is flight and the other is leaning. Fleeing from what is and finding something to lean upon. It is a collective delusion which is kind of in in many ways promoting a sense of inner lack and inner insufficiency. And so we have the thoughts that if we had more, if we had more money, if we had more prestige, if we had more status, if we had a different body, if we had the perfect partner, then surely we could rest. But that we need to earn that, strive for that, force that, um, and only then would it come to us. It's interesting, going back to the poem of Mary Oliver, the Buddha raised his head and looked into the eyes of that frightened crowd. Why were they frightened? We could say, I think, that the teaching that the Buddha offered was a shattering of collective delusion. 
seeking refuge outside of ourselves, fearing it cannot be found inwardly. Perhaps the crowd was frightened because in the Buddha's dying they are losing that which they lent upon. But the Buddha's last teaching, be a light, be an island unto yourself. Take refuge in your own capacity to find an unshakable inner freedom and a receptive heart. The Buddha was no stranger to disappointment. He had experienced in his life many of the same disappointments we are experiencing in our own lives that come simply from living in a world of conditions that cannot be grasped, cannot be mastered, cannot be controlled. A world of conditions that are intrinsically unstable, changing and unpredictable, and so in that intrinsically incapable of satisfying our hopes for safety, our hopes for certainty, our hopes for reliability. This is not wrong, it's not bad, it's simply the way things are. When things don't work out, it's not necessarily a judgment upon us of failure, telling us that we haven't tried hard enough or that we're not good enough. It's simply the way things are. Now, we know this on so many levels, you know, we know this. We know that we live in a world of conditions that is intrinsically uncertain, uncontrollable, ungraspable, and yet part of us just doesn't want to know it. That's the paradox we live with. We know it, and part of us doesn't want to know it. Because to know it would not only be disappointing, but frightening. Because if this is true, if every moment of our life is truly that we stand on these shifting sands, if this is true, where can we turn for refuge? It's not in any way an invitation to disconnect from the world or from life, but an invitation instead to turn inwardly. It can, I think, be frightening to fully embrace the truth that anyone or anything that we have lent upon in the past or that we lean upon in the present or that we want to lean upon in the future is bound within this intrinsic reality of instability and change and at times will crumble. This is not about disconnecting then. Because it's also true that in many of the most vulnerable, you know, this sense of being a light unto ourselves is not then a promotion of disconnection as if we will never need another person in our lives. There will be times in our lives, all of our lives, when our hearts might be broken, when we might feel lost, when we will feel deeply supported by the refuge offered to us by another. And I think this will be true of all of us, that to be able to receive compassion, to be able to take refuge in the compassion offered to us by another, 
is as important as being able to offer refuge to ourselves or another. But in the end, even amidst that, in the end that we, we do know that no one and no thing will in the end actually be able perhaps to heal the pain that we might carry but ourselves. That no one will be able to offer to us the freedom that we long for but that can only, we can only find for ourselves. I, I feel that disappointment um, is such a powerful teacher. It is certainly the place where Siddhartha began his journey. We may or may not have people who love us or people who hate us. We may or may not have experiences of praise or blame. We may or may not have wonderful meditation experiences and concentration. You know, all of this is part of the fabric of the world of conditions. And in that, none of it actually holds the power to shatter our hearts or to deliver enduring peace and happiness. Now for some, this could be sound and felt to be a crushing disappointment, a forerunner of sinking into despair or depression and hopelessness. And yet when disappointment is married to insight, it's the first and I think the most profound step on the journey of awakening. Because we so see for ourselves that standing on the shifting sands of life, that to try to grasp the ungraspable, to try to hold and control that which cannot be held or controlled, is actually a prescription for unhappiness. To know that the world of conditions is actually simply incapable of delivering enduring freedom of happiness, that's the moment we stop fleeing. That's the moment we stop running. It's the moment that we stop busying ourselves with the endless rearrangement of conditions in life. And that perhaps is the moment when we really begin in our lives to be wholeheartedly present and begin to cultivate the the peace and the contentment and the freedom of our own hearts. In our lives, I think we have all had tastes of joy, of happiness, of equanimity, of compassion, no matter how brief those moments may be. And the heart of this path is to remind us again and again that the loveliness of happiness and joy and peace is inwardly born and inwardly generated. It is why so much emphasis on this path and in this tradition is given to formal meditative development. Not to become professional meditators or expert meditators, but there is something in knowing for ourselves what it really means to still the busyness, to calm the agitation, and to begin to taste within our own hearts a happiness and a joy and a peace that is born from within, 
not delivered by conditions, but inwardly generated. This is actually when we talk about being present, it's not a cliche, not a mantra. Awareness is so intelligent to be wholeheartedly present is to be unconditionally present, to to welcome the bird and the pain in the knee equally, to welcome the thoughts of worthiness and unworthiness, to welcome even the desire to flee and the intention to be present. Wholeheartedly present means being mindful and looking at what we are taking refuge in moment to moment. Something that I find really useful to reflect on is just to know that in our lives we are always practicing something. There's never a moment when we're not practicing something. So the question that we bring into our practice, in that practicing of something, are we taking refuge and practicing that which leads to liberation, is a manifestation of liberation and compassion, or are we practicing that which is only takes us further into confusion and agitation and despair? Sometimes we might find ourselves taking refuge in beliefs, all the ideas that we can hold about who we think or who we believe ourselves to be. It's good to listen to our stories of ourselves when we practice. To listen without blame, without judgment, just to listen to the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. That I'm lovely or not, I'm aversive or I'm agitated, I'm inadequate or not, I'm anxious or not. How do we know whether this is simply a belief that has become a reality because we've repeated it so often that it's become a kind of false refuge? How do we know when we are actually doing that? Because it becomes the whole of who we are. It becomes devoid of a question. It becomes a truth. This is who I am, and then that is what I practice in the world. Have you notice that? If I have this sort of description, I'm, I'm a very agitated person, then we'll practice agitation. You know, we'll rush around the house and get busy with the notice board and feel discontented every moment. You know, we will practice agitation. If we believe ourselves to somehow be, you know, somewhat incompetent in the practice or unworthy, we'll probably practice that. You know, sleep will seem like a really good idea. The more of it, the better. You know, the more fantasy, the more space out. What are we practicing in that moment and what is it actually rooted in? Simple truth in this practice and in this life that what we feed will grow. What we begin to see is that our thoughts, our ideas about ourselves, our emotions are only actually a sliver, a very small sliver of the whole. The commitment in taking refuge 
is to a commitment to our own capacity rather than incapacity. And my sense is that many of these self-beliefs are actually often ways of describing incapacity. It's a piece of a poem. The blue lotus spontaneously emerges from the drift of the mire. If you bring to everything an illumined mind, you won't get lost. I send word to those who study to always keep firmly in mind that which is originally pure is none other than wisdom itself. We hear a lot the word awakening and we often hear about it in sort of capital letters. I think it's very good to think about instead about this practice being a way of awakening the moment. This practice is a way of liberating the moment. The Buddha's understanding of freedom, as he described it, was an understanding of that which was already present, a very clear seeing of the way things actually are, and an alignment of his heart his life, with that understanding. The Buddha talked about this understanding and this alignment as something, as a way of being hidden under layers of confusion and and delusion. But the Buddha never talked about his liberation as a way of entering some transcendent place or domain. He just saw so clearly and profoundly and simply things as they actually are. And what was really let go of, what was really released, was the camouflage. The camouflage of false views, the camouflage of self, born of confusion. He didn't deny his world, but transformed the way his world was seen. So what the Buddha talked about was changing his heart, changing his mind changing his way of seeing. When the Buddha was once asked by an admiring follower, saying, you know, who are you? He answered really simply. He said, I'm awake. And this was his refuge. Alive, receptive, responsive, free of clinging and suffering. And I think these two are so interwoven. To be alive, responsive, receptive, means the releasing of clinging and the releasing of suffering. He described this awakening not just as a sort of passing state, but something unshakable, spacious, a reminder again and again. To remember. Where do we remember? In all the places we are forgetful. All the places we are forgetful. Taking refuge in the Sangha, in harmony and community, I think is really rooted in knowing that we cannot afford to do otherwise. 
And here, and you know, in this very strange way, the ways that we come together and retreat, you know, people who don't know each other, you enter into silence, so there's no way of building up a very big image except through our thoughts. I'm sorry, there's, there's plenty of ways of building up plenty of images, but there's no way of confirming them because of the silence. And yet here we are together, living in this remarkably sort of intimate situation, brushing up so closely with one another. And what do we learn here? What do we learn here? Because this, this being together is as much a part of the retreat as what you do alone on the cushion. We could practice a lot of things in this community. Agitation, impatience, intolerance, aversion. But this is also, in some ways, this is a kind of microcosmic view of our life. Because here, of all of our relationships, because here we can also learn the lessons of patience with ourselves and others. The lessons of tolerance and generosity and forgiveness of ourselves and others. The lessons of kindness and compassion for ourselves and others. And we practice these. We take refuge in them. In the Buddhist teaching, it's sometimes said that the whole of the teaching rests upon these three refuges. The discovery, the confidence in our own capacity for awakening, the practice of awakening, the practice of awakening alone and together. So Buddha put it, This noble life we live does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit or its goal, or the attainment of virtue or concentration as its benefit or as its goal. It is the unshakable liberation of the heart that is the goal of this noble life, its heartward and its end. If we take just a couple of moments quietly together. 